0: Welcome back to another episode of the Data Career Podcast. In this episode, I had the pleasure of talking to Jess Ramos. We had a really fun discussion about what we would do in certain different data career situations. So if you're in this situation making this much money, or if you wanted to learn this, how would you learn this? It was a really fun conversation, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. This is the Data Career Podcast, episode 49. Welcome to the Data Career Podcast, the podcast that helps aspiring data professionals land their next data job here's your host avery smith welcome back to another episode of the data career podcast i'm super excited for my guest today it's the fabulous jess ramos and if you guys have never met her or heard about her definitely check out her links in the show notes down below so you guys can connect with her on social jess is a senior data analyst at crunchbase she has a master's in business analytics from the university of georgia I went to Georgia Tech, so we're enemies, but it's okay. She's a data influencer with over 70,000 followers on LinkedIn and also a LinkedIn learning instructor. Overall, she's a great representative of the data community and the women in data community, and I'm stoked that she's here. Jess, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, I'm super happy to be here.
0: Awesome. Thanks so much for coming on. I just wanted to like quickly give the people who maybe aren't familiar with you a chance to get to know you a little bit. So you want to tell us a little bit about what you do now and where your journey started and how you've progressed in your data career.
1: Yeah. So where I am now, I'm a senior data analyst at Crunchbase. So I'm definitely just really passionate about the tech space and I'm doing a lot of different types of analytics work that I've never done before. So that's really exciting. I'm doing a lot of product experimentation. I'm doing some data warehouse work, building metrics and KPIs. I'm really working with a lot of different stakeholders to drive these product experiments and decide what we're going to do with our product and how we can get the most success out of our product features. So that's been really fun.
0: And for those who don't know, can you tell them what Crunchbase is?
1: Yes. The shortest words possible, Crunchbase is a data company with company data. So we basically have a lot of company data. We have data on like the investors of the companies, the funding rounds they've gone through, different contacts of the company. So it's a really good platform to use if you're in like the prospecting space. So if you work in sales or even for job seekers, it's good to see if a company has funding before you go there.
0: Yeah, that is a perfect definition. It's a big deal, guys. She's underselling it. But this is like the company to go get information about other companies, especially in the startup and like seed round and venture capital world, Crunchbase is the go-to company. So she's underselling it. It's an awesome company.
1: So how I got started in my data career, I took an info systems class in undergrad, and that's where I was first exposed to data. I didn't even know that data was a career choice and I just really liked it. So. From there, I did a directed study in data analytics with that same professor. And I didn't even need the class to graduate. I did it just because I wanted to learn more. And that led to an on-campus job, kind of an internship where I was getting to learn R. So I basically got paid to learn R and learn how to clean data. And that was my first like data project. And while I was there, I decided to apply for grad school. And while I was in grad school, I got an internship at a local fintech startup. And that's where I really found my love for the startup and fintech space.
0: Awesome. That's very cool. I want to hone in on one of the things that you just said, because for everyone who's listening, who hasn't come to my free data career training, go ahead and click the link in the show notes down below. But one of the slides in that presentation is there's three ways to learn data analytics. One, you can learn for free. There's like a ton of stuff on YouTube. There's a lot of stuff on LinkedIn stack overflow. You can learn for free. The second one is to, you know, go and pay to learn, which, you know, you did. And I did as well. we both have master's degrees in the analytics space. Obviously that costs a lot more than free. It's typically tens of thousands of dollars here in the United States, or you can get paid to learn. And that sounds like you did a little bit of that as well, where you got this job and they were like paying you to do the job and you were learning R on the job. Do you mind just diving into like how you got connected to that, because I think everyone would choose how to get paid to learn, right? But it's hard to get your foot in the door. So how did you get so lucky to get paid to learn R?
1: Yeah, so honestly, it was through networking and outreach. This job did not fall into my lap. I was looking for a job to have my senior year, uh, my senior year in undergrad. And I was just like reaching out to different people on campus. Hey, I'm looking for a job on campus. I'm really interested in data. And I actually was looking at the admissions office because I thought that would be an interesting place to work. And the woman who worked in the admissions office, her husband worked in enrollment management and he actually needed someone to do some data work for him. So it was totally through connections and outreach and just word of mouth, but it was really awesome to get paid to learn. It was my first like little project to put on my resume And looking back, it wasn't like a super impressive project or anything, but it just ignited like this fire in me for data.
0: I I love that because a lot of people, when they're trying to get their foot in the door, they think it's about skills and it is like, you have to have at least some skills. Right. But it's maybe more important who, you know, and Mm -hmm. not even like who, you know, but who you could know like that can make a really big difference to getting your foot in the door and getting that situation. Like you said, maybe it wasn't the most impressive project of all time, but it's a project and it's on your resume and that was your building block to landing your next job, which was the internship at the FinTech and then you got the master's degree and then where'd you go from there?
1: So my internship at the FinTech, they actually hired me full-time, which was amazing. So I didn't have to do a super extensive job search for my first job, which was a huge blessing. I got a lot of experience there and I was able to get promoted twice while I was there to a manager position. So it was honestly a little lucky, but it was a really good setup for my career.
0: Okay. Wow. So basically after two years, you got put into a manager position.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It's very uncommon, but yeah. It was a small company though. It was only 40 people, but I was managing one full-time person and then an intern as well.
0: Did you like being a manager?
1: I did. I think that it was really fun being able to mentor people. So the two women that came in behind me, they also came from my same master's program, so Mm -hmm. it was cool to see myself in them. They were just like a year behind me and then two years behind where I was. So it was really cool to mentor them and be able to teach them everything I knew. And there's still people I talk to all the time. I'm still really close with them. I realized I was like, I'm a manager at such a young age and I don't feel like I'm fully developed as an analyst yet. Like I still have so much that I myself need to learn that when I was looking for my next role, I applied for a few manager positions just for fun. But I was like, I really want to go back to an IC, an individual contributor role because I really wanted to grow myself.
0: Awesome. Yeah, that's really cool that you like saw that about yourself. That is a phrase I've been hearing more and more you guys, an individual contributor. That just means someone who basically is actually doing work versus like managing people doing work. And it often is abbreviated to
1: IC like Jess said.
0: So then you did that and landed was it a senior
1: data analyst role at that point? So the next role I landed was a senior risk analyst at Freddie Mac. Uh-huh. Okay. The fintech company I was at before was in like the mortgage space and Freddie Mm -hmm. Mac just seemed like a natural flow for me to utilize my previous mortgage technology business domain. And I really just wanted to try a bigger company. I knew in my heart that I was a startup person because I love like fast paced work. But I was like, I want to try a corporate company because I haven't tried it. So I can't really say I don't like it. So it felt like a it felt like a growing opportunity.
0: And how did it go?
1: It was not my favorite.
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: (laughs) I learned very quickly. I think I learned the lessons I needed to learn there super quickly. And I learned that I'm much happier in a smaller company and in more of a startup environment.
0: And that's where you're at with Crunchbase now as a senior data analyst.
1: Yep. And then I moved to Crunchbase, and I'm super happy.
0: That's awesome. Can you talk to the difference between the risk analyst and like the data analyst role, did you feel like, even though it was a risk analyst title, did you, did, was it like, could it have been a data analyst title or are there some differences there?
1: I think there are some differences. I think it was pretty close to a data analyst role. I think the difference is that the problems were more risk focused. So the product that I was working on. It was actually a product that was being launched like three years in the future, which is like crazy to me coming from a startup background, but it was based on like condo risk. So like evaluating risk of condo buildings. So it was pretty much like data analyst work. I think the work was pretty much the same, but the business domain was different because all of the business problems and stakeholders were risk focused.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting because sometimes you'll see these titles that have the word analyst in them. And sometimes they're basically just a data analyst role applied to the domain. And sometimes they're not even like really what I would consider an analyst role. So it's so confusing sometimes what these different roles can mean. That's good to hear that you felt like you were still doing data stuff just applied to that financial background. And by the way, I forgot to ask you studied math in
1: school. Is that right? Yes. I had a double major in math and Spanish, and then I minored in business.
0: Okay. Interesting. And your minor, I'm assuming that's when you took that information systems IS class, right?
1: Yeah. I did a business minor because I didn't really know what else to do. And I took that class because I heard it was an easy A and I just wanted to like get an easy A and get the credit. And little did I know it set up my whole career.
0: Yeah, that's crazy. I wonder if you didn't do the business minor, if you just did math and Spanish, I wonder what you would have done.
1: I have no idea because up until I learned about data analytics, I truly had no idea what I wanted to do. I might've gone to grad school for math or something, which wouldn't have been terrible, but I just didn't want to end up in academia.
0: Yeah, for sure. Which is often the case for people who study math a lot of the time. By the way, do you feel like your math degree helps you in the data field or is it like not a factor?
1: I think 1000%. And I tell people like, you don't have to be a math expert. You don't have to know like super complicated math to work in analytics. So I don't want this to intimidate people or gatekeep in any sort of way. But I do think having a math degree helps me a lot. I think, first of all, it adds like a lot of credibility to me. I think interviewing when hiring managers see that I majored in math, they already know that I can solve problems. They know I can work with numbers and not be scared to get my hands dirty. So I think that really helped me just elevate my credibility while interviewing. But I also think the skills I learned, it wasn't like the, it wasn't like the, the equations and the theorems, like those things aren't what I really use on the daily. It rewired my brain and taught me how to think. So Mm. being able to think logically, think through assumptions and limitations. And then of course, just like basic logic, anytime you're coding or in SQL and you're filtering data, you're adding Booleans, like it's all math. So I think it was pretty easy for me to pick that stuff up because I've already taken a bunch of like discrete mathematics and proofs classes.
0: Yeah. I think you said it very well that. You know, when it comes to does having a math degree help you in the data field, the answer is yes, it does help you, but you don't necessarily need one. It's an added bonus Mm -hmm. and it's going to make life easier for you, but you can still get through your data career without the math degree. I think you said that that really well. Okay, perfect. So that's just a little bit about Jess, you guys. Like I said, if you guys haven't connected with her, go ahead and check her out in the show notes down below. We're going to go ahead and play a game now together, Jess, if you're okay with that. Does that sound good? I'm down. Let's do it. Okay. I've never played this game on the podcast, so hopefully this works out. But what we're going to do with Jess is we're going to play a career scenarios game where I'm going to present Jess with a scenario that you might be in your career, or maybe it's your uncle or your cousin, these random people. And we're going to see, we're going to present the situation to Jess. And then Jess is going to tell us what she thinks that she would do if she was in that situation. And then maybe I'll give my thoughts about what I would do if I was in that situation and we'll compare and contrast and see if we have similar explanations and suggestions or maybe we have a different take, a different approach. Hopefully we have different approaches so at least it's a little bit interesting to hear (laughs) both of us.
1: This is gonna be juicy.
0: Yes, let's go. So the first one is about Sally. Now, Sally just graduated with an accounting degree and she went to work for one of the, the big accounting firms, Deloitte. She was really excited to start her job. She was really passionate about accounting, but now she's five minutes or five minutes in, five months into her job, and she's not in love. She feels like the tasks that she's given aren't necessarily her favorite. She's just not as excited to go into work every day, and she's just losing a little bit of the spark. So, what would you do, Jess, if you were Sally?
1: I've actually been in a similar situation. I have been in a role before where pretty close to starting, I realized it really wasn't a great fit. I wasn't really learning as much as I wanted to. It wasn't a place I wanted to be long-term. And I think if you're already having those doubts at the beginning, it's a clear sign that you're not super happy. You should never be like, oh, I need to stay a year and then I'll leave at a job. like. You should never see like a deadline on when you want to leave your job. If you're starting to count down and think about leaving, it means you're probably ready to leave. So I would tell Sally to figure out why she doesn't like her job. Is it the type of work she's doing? Is it the culture? Cause I know big four has very traditional corporate cog in a machine culture. And I think if Sally narrows in on why she's not happy, she can figure out what she wants to do next. And my advice would not be to wait because life is too short. No one's going to care if you left your job quickly, as long as you, as long as you have the right skills and someone's willing to hire you, no one's going to look back and care that you left a job quickly.
0: Yeah, I agree with that, a lot of what you said. I think narrowing it down to figuring out why she's not happy is really important because it's hard to diagnose this. This comes back to the troubleshooting process that you just talked about there. But if you're not happy at your job, try to figure out why, and then play with the variables one at a time to see if you can fix it. You might think it's my coworkers. Maybe you try to go hang out with some other coworkers after work, or maybe it's your boss. And one of the things I think I wish I had did better in the past is when I'm not happy, letting my boss know. Like communicating with my boss, because I think a lot of the times I feel certain emotions inside of me. And this is true at work, now I'm my own boss. So sometimes I am mad at me, but like even outside of work, like I am very active in my church and I do a lot of church service. And one of the things I do for our church is I like send out these text messages every week. And the guy who's like in charge of like me in the situation, The other day I was just like super frustrated. I was like, I don't know what the heck I'm supposed to be doing. And I was feeling all this resentment inside of me. And then finally I realized, man, I have this unhealthy habit of just kind of holding that resentment in and not saying anything. And so I just texted him and I said, Hey, look, like I want to be doing my best here, but I don't really know what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm not really finding a lot of satisfaction in this. And he's okay. Let's make some changes so that we can make it work. I think in the past I've been too slow to bring up the questions and just say how I'm feeling now Some companies are gonna react better to that than other companies, but I just wanna focus on communication. I think that's one thing Sally could focus on. Does that make sense?
1: Oh yeah, for sure. And communication is something I really learned in my last job. I had pretty solid first job out of grad school. I didn't really have a lot of conflicts or issues. And I think I was really lucky for experiencing that. So at my last job at Freddie Mac, I did have to learn a lot of communication skills. I had to have hard conversations with my manager and, you know, talk about the kind of work that I was told I'd be doing and what I really wanted to be doing. And I think it's really hard to bring those conversations up with your manager, especially if you don't have a good rapport and relationship built up. But it's definitely worth it to bring it up and speak your mind. Otherwise, you're just going to bottle up resentment and be unhappy and they might have no idea that you're unhappy.
0: Yeah. And it's hard because maybe they would fix it if they knew that you were unhappy. And then going back off of what you said about not being worried to leave your job early, it's something I agree with as well. I agree. Life's too short. Now there are some, let's say an older generation than me and you, because we're pretty young. I'm 27. I don't know how old old you are, but you're pretty young as well. Um, And there, there are some people who are older who maybe believe that you should have a little bit more of accountability to your company and stuff like that. And they might judge you. But that being said, I'm getting older and people, my age are becoming more managers and stuff like that. And yeah, like eventually that will go away. But also I actually think that staying in your current job, especially if you hate it, can actually be holding you back from making more money. And one of the best examples of this on LinkedIn is Zach Wilson. He's never worked for a company. He just left He just left Airbnb. He's never stayed at a company like longer than 20 months. And every time he left a company, he got a huge raise. Mm-hmm. Now there was some companies, he's talked about this on LinkedIn. Like I think he was interviewing with Robinhood, the stock investing app. And they were like, you, you jump ship way too often. We're not interested. So that does happen. But then there's companies like Airbnb who are like, sweet. We're in, we don't care. And I just think he's got a pay grade every time he made one of those jumps. And so really a lot of the times when you're making one of these jumps, but I would never advise to jump without a plan, right? But a lot of the times the plan B is actually better than plan A.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I think with Zach Wilson's case too, I think he just has such a big platform. He's a high profile person. So I'm sure that people at Robinhood might've been more in tune with like his past salaries. And he is someone that does support career switching every 20 months or so. But I think for someone without as high of a profile, I don't think an employer would really even blink an eye. I think it's a lot more common nowadays to switch jobs more often. And I'm not saying switch like crazy, like you want to have a certain amount of loyalty to your company. But at the end of the day, it is a job. I love Crunchbase. I love my job. But I know they could lay me off tomorrow, they have the power to cut me if they want to. So I do just always want to make sure that i'm looking out for what's best for me and i will say too in the past like i have doubled a little over doubled my salary within an 11 month time span and a lot of that was through negotiating my current salary up to market value and then making a job switch so it really is worth it to switch every I don't want to even put a number on it, but once you, <laughs> I don't want to put a number on it because I don't want I don't want angry DMs, but once you start to get to the point to where you've maxed out that role and you're not learning as much and you're not growing, it's it probably time for a switch. You'll probably make more money and learn new skills. I think if I wouldn't have left my first job, which I loved, I loved the people, I loved the role, but I just maxed out the role. There wasn't really a whole lot more for me to learn, and I think if I wouldn't have left it, I think that... I just wouldn't have learned as much because I learned so no. many valuable experiences at Freddie Mac and then now at Crunchbase, like this is the most challenging and advanced work I've done in my career. And I'm so like happy and motivated by it. That's awesome.
0: Sally, we advise you to try to fix it. If you can have good communication, but if it's, if you've spent three months of trying to have good communication, don't be afraid. Yes. Yeah, Sally. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Hopefully that helps imaginary salary, Sally, (laughs) and hopefully you get a bigger salary too. Okay. Number two scenario here. This is a guy imaginary Ben. So Ben has been applying for data jobs for the last little bit, but has not been getting any bites. What do you do if you're Ben?
1: So I was Ben actually about six to eight months ago, but If you're not getting any bites, you need to figure out like at what point in the interview process are you getting cut? Because that is like the root of the problem. If you're not getting any recruiter calls, it means that it might be your resume or your lack of outreach on LinkedIn. So if you're not getting any recruiter calls at all, you need to beef up your resume, make sure it is tailored to the role and industry you're targeting, and don't just cold apply and sit back, reach out on LinkedIn. If you apply to a company, go find a recruiter, a data analytics manager, someone make contact with a human. And that's how you get more interviews. If you're not getting past the recruiter round, it means that maybe you're throwing up a red flag somewhere. Maybe something you're saying isn't like landing well, maybe you're not convincing them that you have the necessary skills because recruiters are just making sure you have the basics for the role. So maybe it's like a little bit of a communication issue or something you're saying is just not sitting well with them, if you're not getting past the hiring manager, this is the problem I had when I was interviewing right before I got my job at Crunchbase, it might be because you're not communicating your value well enough. And it might not be that you don't have the right skills. It might just be that it's more of a communication and like value proposition issue. So just make sure you practice the STAR method and communicating the results and impact of your projects Or it could also be that maybe you're throwing up a red flag somewhere, which I realized for me that the way I was explaining why I was leaving my last job was not the best look from a hiring manager's point of view. So I had to look through all of my interviews and be like, I keep flying through to the the hiring manager and I'm not moving past what's wrong. And then I changed up the way I explained why I was leaving my last job. And from there, the floodgates just broke open for me.
0: Yeah, what you said was very key. Like the job hunt application process is a funnel. So if you're not getting any interviews, you have to think, okay, where do I can apply to a job and where am I coming out? You have to think, where am I getting rejected? And there's different stages. Like you said, you can get rejected by the ATS at the beginning. And then you're like, okay, my resume and my application is not good. You can get rejected by a recruiter a little bit later on. And maybe that's, once again, maybe you didn't have a, a good enough LinkedIn profile or a good enough portfolio. You can bomb an interview or fail the interview process or something like that. It's really important to know where you're at in the whole pipeline because what you need to do will be based off of the feedback you're getting. I had a student the other day who came to me and they're like, I just need to learn SQL more. I'm not getting a job because I need to learn SQL more. And I said, tell me more about that. Like, why do you think that you're not going to get a job because you don't know SQL well enough? And she was like, I just don't feel like I know it enough. And I was like, well, it's on your resume, right? You have a portfolio project with it. Yeah, but I just don't feel like I know it enough. And I was like, let the recruiter tell you that in the interview. Don't reject yourself from jobs that you could potentially land just because you're not confident enough in your skills. Mm-hmm. Now, if you get into the interview and there's a SQL assessment and you bond the SQL assessment, then yes, maybe it's time to get a little bit better at SQL. But I, I want people to be at like this like edge where you know enough SQL to get past the interview but you don't know enough that you've spent five years perfecting it, right? We wanna get learned, we wanna get paid to learn SQL. So it's this fine line of knowing enough, but not knowing everything, optimizing that can be difficult. But I think what you said is really important, just like nowhere in the funnel, you're getting your rejection. I think that's key.
1: Totally, and I'm laughing because I don't feel like I know SQL, and I feel like there's just always so much to learn. So that imposter syndrome is real, even when you get to more senior levels. And one more thing I wanted to add with the communication, sometimes it's like, you don't know the right words to say. And I'm not saying that you just wanna say the words that a recruiter and hiring manager wanna hear, but I just mean that there are certain like phrases that you might know, but you don't know you know them. Like when I first started interviewing, I was like, a hiring manager asked me if I knew what a CTE was. This was like almost a year ago. And I was like, what's a CTE? Can you explain it to me? And I'm pretty sure they thought I didn't know how to do it, but I didn't know the name for it. So I've been using CTEs for years with a table as whatever. Yeah. I knew you call it like
0: a with clause or yes, something.
1: Yes, exactly. I was, I can do those in my sleep. I just didn't know what they were called. So I think just making sure like the verbiage, like what's a window function, a CTE union, make sure you understand what you're really doing and to communicate that in a way to where a hiring manager knows that you have the skills. Yeah,
0: for sure. When I was first getting my data job, I had two interviews. Like this is my first data job. And they're like, do you want to do pivot tables? And I was like, I don't know what that is. That was not good. (laughs) I actually didn't know what those were, but then there was another one where they're like, would you ever want to make dashboards? And at the time, once again, I'm brand new to data, right? I was like, dashboards are like in cars. How do you like make them with data? I don't know how that works. We've come a long way in our knowledge, but hopefully yeah. Just knowing some of the words and to be honest, sometimes I love you all my recruiters. I love you guys. But sometimes the recruiters don't actually know anything about the tech stuff and they're just looking for you to say yes to certain things and they don't actually know what a CTE is either. Exactly.
1: Like you have to know the right buzzwords. I'm not saying lie and say things you don't know how to do, but like I'm in like the fintech startup software as a service world, so those are like the buzzwords I got to hit when I talk to a recruiter. I need them to know I have that previous technology experience. So You gotta learn how to communicate to a recruiter who doesn't actually know what those things are.
0: For sure. Okay, awesome. Moving on to scenario three, all right? Scenario three here is a guy named Graham. Graham has a data job offer, woo-hoo. One as a data analyst with Dow Chemical. If you guys don't know what Dow Chemical is, it's a big chemical company corporation that's gonna pay really well. It's gonna pay $102,000 a year, a beautiful campus, a 3% 401k match, like really good benefits, really good brand recognition on your resume, or he has another one. This one's with germ tech and it's for $120,000. This is a startup company. So they're going to pay a little bit more, but there's bad, not really good healthcare, there's no 401k match. The office and the office equipment's not that nice. Which of these jobs should Graham take? The one with Dow or the one with germ?
1: I think it comes down to Graham's priorities. And I think it's a decision that Graham needs to make on his own. If I were Graham, I would go all in for the startup offer because, and I guess it depends too if this is Graham's first job or not. I started my career in startups. I have a huge passion for them and I love how quickly you can learn and iterate. I got to do, and even now in my current role, I'm getting to do so many different kinds of projects and I have too many projects for my resume at this point. Like I've gotten to do so many cool things. And I think that's really unique to the startup environment. So if it's like Graham's first job, it could be a great place for him to get a ton of good experience and make himself a more valuable candidate whenever he's looking for his next role in the next couple years or so. I also think too, 401k match is great, but there's a much higher salary at the startup. So I think that covers the difference of what the 401k one match would be, in my opinion. So Graham could take that extra money and go invest it himself, you don't have to necessarily have a 401k benefit, he can still invest the extra income on his own. What else do I have to say about this? Oh, the other thing I was thinking the big corporation that has the campus, does Graham want to work on campus? That is my question, because I don't give a crap what kind of campus a company has sure maybe I'll come once or twice a year and come visit and it'll be fun but <laughs> a campus is not a benefit in my opinion when I hear a company has a campus and they want me on it all the time I no. I like working remotely
0: there you go you heard it you heard it here first folks yeah. Jess Jess <laughs> likes the remote work lifestyle I right? do that's awesome
1: remind me Jess where do you live again I live in Athens Georgia
0: okay sweet Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I'm with you. I am a work from home guy for the most part. I think I could do hybrid, but but probably two days a week. I don't think I could do three. So, anyways, I am a work from home guy as well. I think you dressed a lot of the important parts. It really depends on what Graham wants and how Graham wants to optimize his life. What I didn't tell you, Jess, is Graham was actually me uh, when I was when I was (laughs) when I was leaving college. This is the exact decision I had to make when I was leaving college. So. I had the option to go to work for ExxonMobil instead of Dow and make like a hundred and two and a half thousand dollars or something like that in Houston, Texas, or stay at the company, the little biotech startup that I was at. Um, in Salt Lake City, Utah, that was not called GermTech. It was called VaporSense and make $120,000. And I chose ExxonMobil. So I'll tell you what I, reasons I chose that, like the big corporation. One, I had never worked for a big corporation in my life. And so I was like, I think I needed to go try that out and see if I like it. Because at the startup, like I didn't have a good desk. I didn't have a good computer, stuff like that. And I was like, I want, and I had, I actually interned for ExxonMobil before, and I loved like the desk was the nicest desk and I had the most beautiful office view and they fed me like three times a week. And I was like, this is awesome. I love wow. this. So that that was important to me. In hindsight, I think I would've, I, it turns out I hated working for a corporation. I did feel like a cog in the machine. Personally, that was just for me, my personality, it was not a good fit. So looking back on it, I probably, if I was like optimizing everything, I probably would've stayed with the startup, but who knows, I'm grateful for my experiences that I had and the opportunities I had to learn. And I learned a whole heck of a lot and I learned different things than I would have learned at the startup as well. So I don't regret anything. But an interesting scenario where I took less money. I guess another thing that I'm grateful for is I have the brand recognition on my resume. Mm-hmm. ExxonMobil has been the biggest company in the world before. It's not right now, obviously, but like, It's a huge, it's a huge name, not in tech though, which is frustrating, but it's still like a ginormous organization and having that on my resume never hurts. So anyways, kind of a fun fact. I wanted to hear your advice (laughs) that you would have given to younger Avery back in the day.
1: Kudos to you though, for taking the lower offer. I think a lot of people just look at the like price tag, like they just look at the salary and that's like what they weighed the most for their decision, but you went for a lower salary and you recognized that the brand recognition, the career development, and like these other perks were more important to you, which is funny that they like convinced you with a nice desk, but.
0: This is pre-COVID. yep, yeah. yeah, for sure. <laughs> and, and also I wanted to move out of Utah, so that was a big deal and Texas yeah. I don't know what it's like in Georgia, but Texas is like dirt cheap. You like the actual like money when you like put it in there's like that a website that's what is this salary worth in this city versus this city? The salary was actually pretty similar because the buying power in Texas just goes a lot further. But but yeah, money is a big part of life, but it's not everything in life. So you gotta optimize your life on different aspects.
1: Yeah, that's really impressive too that you had two offers that high for your first job out of school. My starting salary was in the 70 to 80 range, which is not a bad starting salary, but not quite six figures. But I think the awesome thing is like, even if you do take a lower offer, there's so much room in this field to move up. And once you get those skills, it doesn't matter what your starting salary is, you can just grow your salary exponentially.
0: Yeah, 100%. At VaporSense where they basically offered me 120,000. I started there as a lab technician making $12 an hour. So I went wow. from $12 an hour to 60. So that's like a 5X. And I did that with just a, if you want to know the exact story, come to my free data training. I walked through the whole story, but basically I did it with a project and with a network and narrowing down my skills, SPN method, do those three things. You can lead off to a good place. Okay, Jess, those were our three scenarios we want to talk through today. Thank you for your advice. You definitely helped Sally, Ben and Graham through their decisions. I appreciate it.
1: It was a lot of fun. I'm glad I helped out Graham. I mean, Avery with his decision.
0: <laughs> yep. You just, you're just like a couple of years too late, but other than that, yeah, it was very useful. Anyways, any last parting words for our listeners? Where can they find you?
1: I am mostly on LinkedIn, so you can find me on LinkedIn. I just actually announced my Instagram about a week ago. So you can find me on Instagram now as Jess Ramos Data. I'll be posting some data tips in the form of video content and some mediocre comedy, so follow me there. I'm also working on some really cool resources to do with resumes, and I have my LinkedIn course out, which is designed to help people searching for a data analytics job.
0: I hope you enjoyed that episode, and if you did, I'm gonna have an awesome free masterclass that I know you're going to love. We're gonna talk about a lot of things this episode talked about. You can get it absolutely for free at datacareerjumpstart.com slash training or using the link in the show notes down below. Hope to see you there.